0: Hello everyone. Welcome back to another fine episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. So, in full disclosure, I actually recorded this episode a few months back with a good friend, a brilliant scientist, and an all-around great guy, Ro Allen, who's actually been on the podcast quite a few times since then and currently is pursuing his Ph.D. in New Zealand, so we miss Roe quite a lot, but I'm very confident that he's kicking its ass. Anyway, I'm going to go out on a limb here and speak for Roe, and of course myself, and say that today's episode topic is actually something that's near and dear to both our hearts, because we're going to be discussing what it's like to actually be a marine biologist. Or, if I was doing a pharmaceutical drug advert, I would say... Find out if marine biology is right for you, and then I'd have a list of things that probably wouldn't apply. Actually, that's not true. High blood pressure, um, loss of hair, trouble going to the bathroom, impotence—it's all—it's all included. <laughs> well, I won't. I actually I won't get into that. Uh, but anyway, we were really trying to cater to people that were in high school, college, interested in maybe marine biology, or you know, just fans of the show, I guess and to really share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of our perspective and experiences when it comes to marine biology. I will also give you the caveat that Roe and I did pretty much finish an entire bottle of Bushmills whiskey during the process of recording this episode, so you might hear the occasional glasses clinking or slurred words, or even a tangent that doesn't make sense, like this. She does other, you know, kind of very public uh, speaking activities and events. Or worse, this. <laughs> to be fair, that's a very important lesson. I made that mistake when I was younger. Did you actually? Look how I turned out. <laughs> <laughs> but drunken joking aside, the overall message that we're trying to get across and the information that we try to really convey is still there. You will get, in my humble opinion, a, I think, good brief overview of what it's really like to go through the process of becoming a marine biologist. So, without further ado and stalling, let's let's get into this. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know, it's about how science literature, you are. Hello and welcome to today's show. I'm Amir Fogel from the great state of Maryland, USA. And uh, I'm Ro Allen and I'm from England. Yes, and um, we are both masters recent graduate of the master's program at Plymouth University. We both did marine biology. Why don't you give a little disclaimer here, Ro?
1: Yeah, so, um, so
0: as Amir alluded to, we've
1: both just finished our master's degrees at Plymouth University and the Marine Biological Association. And, um, and we just want to preface this podcast by saying that the views that we're expressing are entirely our personal views and do not represent the university or the Marine Biological Association in any way, shape or
0: form. Any way, shape or form. Um, today's podcast episode is going to be about how to be a marine biologist, the avenues and the choices you will eventually have to make as a marine biologist, and if you are going to be pursuing it seriously, some tips that might help you along the way.
1: On top of that, we also want to address some kind of like myths and misinformation that are circulating online and really um, try and give you a strong idea of what being a marine biologist is actually like and what it entails on a
0: day-to-day basis. Yes. Do not watch The Life Aquatic of Steve Zuzu and assume that that's what a marine biologist is because it's not. I wish. That's only on Saturdays. <laughs> Saturday nights between the hours of 8 and 12. Um, but yes, so since today's podcast episode is about the topic of being a marine biologist, I feel like it's only, or rather, I think it's only appropriate to talk a little bit about why we chose marine biology personally as a path and a career path to follow. So, Ro, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you chose marine biology? Yeah, so I was was very lucky and I got taken scuba diving
1: when I was 12 years old. And getting into the underwater environment just really fascinated me and i decided then and there that i wanted to be a marine biologist which is a fairly uninformed decision for a 12 year old to be making Uh, but for better or for worse here i am and uh and so my interest for worse (laughs) i'm kidding sorry go on (laughs) (laughs) so my interest grew um as i went through school and uh by the time i'd finished school i was i was a dive instructor and i was um i spent a year working in thailand before coming back and pursuing an undergraduate degree in marine biology also at Plymouth. How about you, Amir?
0: Yeah, so I had a different experience. I did not go diving as a kid. Um, And actually, I found marine biology as an adult in my undergraduate. You could say I'm a born-again marine biologist, so to speak. I never thought ill of it, but I just never thought of it as a career choice. Um, But it was really not until I went to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is a liberal arts college. And it is essentially special because, or I-, I like the term unique, because it allows you to create your own major. And so you can take different classes, you can take different, literally, you know, pretty much any different subject and turn it into your, your dissertation, your career path, your major, your concentration, whatever you want to call it. And so I took marine biology and documentary film because those are the two subjects that I'm, I feel very passionate about. Now, aside from that, I also want to just shout out to R. Aidan Martin because he, though he's no longer with us, unfortunately, um, he was a very inspirational individual in my kind of path to choosing marine biology. Um, I never met him personally, but I found his site, the ReefQuest site, uh, Elasma Brink as well. If you type in R.A. Martin and then Elasma Brink research, you will find his site. And it's, it's very informative. It's pretty much anything you want to know about rays, skates, and sharks. But also, you know, he was very upfront. There's a whole blurb on his site about how to be a marine biologist and specifically a shark biologist, which is what my focus was and still is. And so, you know, he doesn't kind of cut the crap with you, Uh, or rather he does cut the crap, and he tells you that it's not an easy path. You really need to be serious and passionate because otherwise you're not going to make it and it's not for you. So that was nice to know early on, but part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is because a lot of people don't have that honest, upfront view that's given to them. They don't know that it's not necessarily a nice, clean-cut follow the yellow brick road. It's, you know, oh, yeah, that's nice, marine biology. So the reason we're doing this is because we've learned kind of Through more harder routes, that becoming a marine biologist seriously in the academic field is a lot of work and a lot of dedication. And so, we want to just not dissuade anybody from choosing the path because I have no regrets. I don't know about you, Ro. No, he's nodding his head. He has no regrets. Shaking, rather. You know, we want to be honest with what you're going to be getting if you're an aspiring marine biologist, if you're already pursuing marine biology, or if you're already there.
1: Also, I think um, just to chime in and say, it's not that we're we're trying to dissuade you, as, as Amir said. It's more that we want to give you an accurate picture of what it is. And yeah, I have one am extremely happy um, working as a marine biologist, and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. But um, but the things I enjoy are not necessarily the things that I was expecting. So um, so I think hopefully we can just kind of elucidate what's going to be uh, what's going to be in store for you guys. Um, and I think a good way to start is. Um, Obviously, you know a, a little bit of background about Amir and I now, but what do, you think, um, what do you think are some good things to do for aspiring marine biologists to be involved with when they're looking at colleges and when they're trying to, um, trying to position themselves well whilst they're still in school?
0: I, I have had people from my hometown when I you know, came back for breaks or the occasional visit back to the States. I have friends of the family that ask me because their children are now interested in marine biology. And I'm like, oh, what did you do when you were their age? Or can you give them any tips? And what I tell them is, volunteer. Volunteer, find any internship you can. Show that you are interested in the subject because if you show that you are actually passionate and you are dedicated and that you are willing to volunteer your time and energy, that shows that you're serious about the subject. And if you're serious about it, academics will take you seriously. So, you know, I have friends of the family that worked at the National Aquarium in Baltimore, and that was, you know, their kind of gateway into getting onto the Marine Biology Program and getting to know the professors on the Marine Biology Program because, you know, a lot of them might do research at the aquarium or might do research at the Institute of Marine Environment and Technology right next door to the aquarium, uh, which is a great place. IMET's awesome, uh, if anybody's there. But, you know, it's just, it's getting involved in Marine Biology and showing that you have that interest that really makes the difference you know
1: yeah absolutely I, I I really second that and I think if you can get some nice volunteer experience while you're still in school it's gonna it's gonna make your university applications a lot stronger and really show that you are committed to, to marine biology and um, and you are going to make a great undergraduate candidate other things to talk about are obviously making sure your grades are good so while you're studying really put the effort in because if your grades don't reflect the aspirations that you're trying to communicate on your application forms, then then you might have problems getting into, getting into some of the top schools. Um, on top of that, this is solely an English point, but as you have to select what you wanna study at English universities before you apply, um, it's essential that you choose your A-levels appropriately for studying marine biology so in the uk most marine biology programs will require you to have studied a biology a level and also another science which is really they're usually looking for chemistry so make sure that if you want to be a marine biologist that when you're going into a level programs that you pick biology and chemistry as two of your subjects and you really make sure that those two are the ones that you do well in um, so yeah really i, I guess before college You know, it's 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 more about just getting good grades, picking the right subjects and just demonstrating some sort of volunteer experience to show that you really are truly interested in this and and you're committed to it. Uh,
0: I completely agree. The only thing I would add is from the U.S. perspective is that obviously we don't have A-levels, but, you know, as Rose said, having good grades is definitely important. You know, if you can take AP biology, AP chemistry, those are great to have especially, you know, if you're more interested maybe in oceanography, chemistry is a stronger route. But, you know, I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't the best student. I was a solid B student, sometimes above a little bit, sometimes below a little bit. And math was definitely not my strong suit. That said, you know, if you show interest in extracurriculars, that's why for at least the the U.S. route, because when you're applying to colleges and universities, they look at Not just your SAT and ACT scores, but increasingly more, it's about the individual themselves. And if you show that you're interested and if you show that you're passionate and you're, you know, a scuba diver and you're scuba certified or you spent a summer, instead of going to, you know, sleepaway camp, which, you know, I'm guilty of. I went for 14 years, but, you know, you went to a marine conservation (laughs) camp instead. Don't laugh. Sleepaway camp's awesome. Uh, but yeah, you know, you want you did beach cleans periodically, or if you're not necessarily near the ocean, you can't do that. You're not near a coast, then you join a marine biology association um, or society. You know, you can. There are tons of different societies you can join. Sign up to new to email newsletters. Sign up to you know just different groups on Facebook. There's a lot of different ways to stay active, and as long as you show the interest on your academic record and your resume you'll, you'll do fine. You know, you, you can still do it. Don't let the grades fool you if you're in the US system, because it's more about how driven you are. Um, that's, that's the only thing I would add.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and very, very good points. Okay, so, um, so you've done all the hard work, you're at school, you're, you're getting the right grades, you're doing all the necessary extracurriculars. Yeah. Um, so you're coming to that time where you're applying for university. How how would you pick um, the right college or the right university for you to go study marine biology?
0: Well, you know, that's a good point. And I generally say <laughs> look look for the universities and the colleges that are near the coast, <laughs> because those are the ones that are going to have access to docks and they're going to have, you know, their own boats and their own research vessels. Also, semester is a great program that you can go on if you're already in college or before college, actually, even. But if you're interested in marine biology, you need to be choosing a university that's near a coast, near near the water.
1: Yeah, so um, so obviously location is important to give yourself the opportunity to do a good amount of field work. Um, the other things that I'd say are important are just looking up the program's prestige, so really understanding how good the marine biology program is at that school. And marine biology is a really interesting subject because it's so niche and because the, uh, the academics working in it uh, are pretty limited. Like it's, it's, it's not a huge field. Often the schools that are really great with marine biology or have really, really strong marine biology programs aren't necessarily at the top of the, uh, uh, at the, top of the league tables generally. Um, so really make sure you do your research and, and make sure you're picking a really strong marine biology program. The second thing I'd like to add to that is if you're lucky enough that when you're an undergraduate, you already have an idea of what aspects of marine biology you're interested in. For example, shark biology, or climate change, or mangrove ecology. Make sure that you're doing some research and understanding which professors are prominent in that field and which professors are publishing high-quality research in that field, and try and go to a university which which has a reasonable amount of those professors, um, because that's gonna that's gonna really open the gate for you as a career marine biologist to be working in
0: the field that you want. Yeah, sorry to interject. I just want to say one thing. A lot of the researchers in the field are a lot more accessible than you would think. If you send them a quick email, if you make the effort to try and, and meet them or try and just let them know who you are and continue that kind of contact with them, let's say they do a guest lecture, go up to them afterwards. Introduce yourself. Send them a nice little email being like, I really enjoyed your talk. Maybe ask a question. Because if you ask a question, it shows that you're involved. It shows that you are listening and participating and that you're knowledgeable on the subject, that you're knowledgeable enough to inquire about what they were talking about. So that stands out to academics in the field.
1: So exactly. So so when you're picking your school, just, just make sure you're going to a place which is going to allow you to study what you're actually interested in um, so you don't immediately end up closing some doors to yourself. Okay, so once you get to university, you you have this great opportunity where you're going to be exposed to uh, um, some of the best academics in your field for three or four years, and you're going to have unparalleled access to them and a lot of opportunity to meet with them. So this is a really, really important time for you to form relationships and just really make sure you're nailing down your academics.
0: Yeah, I mean, making connections and keeping up those connections is such a big part of forwarding your your own agenda because everybody has their agenda and also making sure that you keep your mission safe but yes so there's obviously once you once you get to undergrad you'll do your degree you'll most likely have to do a research project a dissertation of some sorts that is right there the diving board for potentially the rest of your career so making sure that that research is good making sure you have a good academic advisor making sure that you are thinking of the future as well. Because what you do in your undergraduate could lead to your master's, could lead to your PhD, now and your postdoc, and so on and so forth. Now, I know that right now I'm mentioning only academic roots. I want to just say that just because you do a marine biology undergraduate degree does not necessarily mean the only option is to pursue academia. But because Ro and I I's focus and... You know, our path right now has led us into the academic field. That's why we're focusing on that. So on the subject of academia, you know, a a mentor and a academic and, you know, the guy that was actually in charge of our uh, master's degree program ha- ha- held a lesson for us that really opened our eyes and was something that we didn't really have exposure to beforehand, but I really wish I had. It wouldn't necessarily change my mind into taking the path of marine biology, but it would have been nice to know beforehand. Ro, I don't know if you want to expand on this at all, but the lesson itself was kind of eye-opening, as I'm hinting to, about how difficult it really is to carve yourself a path in marine biology as a career.
1: Um, yeah, essentially we were shown the statistics of career progression in marine biology and, um, uh, loosely speaking, they were showing that about 10% of undergraduate students go on to do a master's degree, and then about 10% of master's students go on to do a PhD, and then about 10% of PhD students successfully postdoc. Um, so really what it was showing is like an incredibly small percentage of marine biologists actually make it to becoming full-time marine biologists and researchers. Now, that did seem very doom and gloom but i think what both amir and i have realized throughout throughout our studies is that actually um it's a bit of a misrepresentative statistic and really the people that are still around aren't necessarily um the best and brightest and the top academic achievers but they're the people that work hard and also really still want to be there um and it's almost like a a bit of a war of attrition i think yeah and um and people at various points along the way tend to decide actually marine biology is not for them. Whereas the people who do still enjoy it and do still want to stay in it are the, are the ones that tend to last till the end.
0: You know, I, I, just on a side note, I find it interesting if marine biologist like Ro here, who's sitting right next to me, looking all elegant and you know fancy. He happens to be a very athletic individual. He plays rugby. He's a mixed martial artist. And generally has a competitive nature when it comes to sports. So, uh, I'm not wrong, right? No, yeah, he, he's shaking his head. So that means I'm correct. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'd be curious to know if there's some side, of, some sort of correlation between your competitive side and persistence to continue marine biology. Infer what you will about that. But just, just an interesting side note, I think. But anyway, to get back to the point, you finish your undergrad, you apply for master's, you finish your master's. You apply for your PhD, you finish your PhD. You are now the expert in the field of research that you've done your PhD on. Cool. Awesome. Now is postdoc. So that's, you know, between two to six years, would you say? Yeah, Yeah, about two to six years. Two to six years of short-term contracts around the world, potentially. You, you could be placed anywhere in the world, depending on what your field of research is and not necessarily a permanent position most of the time not a permanent position
1: so i think now is a good time to explain what a postdoctoral position actually consists of and um and generally speaking what happened when you're a postdoctoral researcher is you'll be employed by a university or a research group to complete a piece of research so that would be with research funding that you've either brought in yourself or that has been brought in by the research group and they'll There'll be a research question and an experiment you need to perform, and you'll address that, and you'll you'll basically be asked to produce an academic journal publication or multiple academic journal publications as a result of your work. Um, and how well you do as a postdoc and how many publications you get and the quality of your research is going to affect your ability to move on from the postdoc position in your career.
0: But for those people there, you know, there is a, a, a group of people that don't necessarily want to pursue a postdoc. For other people that just want to stay in the loop, they want to stay up to date and have the leading knowledge of, you know, the field of research that they're in, they may choose to take a research position because that's a paid position and you can still publish papers with that. And it's not necessarily the pressure of being a lead researcher either. You can kind of just be a co-author. If you do do the postdoc, though, <laughs> do-do, you know, you will eventually be on that trajectory to be the lead researcher in your field and have that position, which is most of the time manifested as a academic and teaching position at a university, but, you know, that has the upsides of also being recruited to work on panels for the UN or other international bodies, Or, you know, uh, you can be contacted for television programs and nature documentaries and so on and so forth. People call you because they know that you know the most about the subject.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately what your path as a research marine biologist is leading up to is a permanent position at university. Now, that can be as a lecturer where you're doing a lot of teaching as well as your research, or it can be a professorial position where where you're research focused and you might do some teaching as well. Um, but in reality, what, what you want to do is, is secure a position at a university where you can really pursue your research interests and make sure that you are a leader in your field. And then, yeah, just just maintaining a really strong record
0: of publications. And it's interesting as well, because once you get to that point, you have PhD students, you have master's students, and you have undergrad students that all work under you and work for your research. And so you all kind of work as a team in the ideal world that you're all contributing and you're all working towards the same goal to learn more about this specific research field. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes it can be more like endangered servants, uh, but hopefully you will always get a good experience. You'll always learn something from it, regardless of your position. Now, we've kind of established the hierarchy of, or er, not the hierarchy, we've established the path. path, thank you, that's a good word, the path and the evolution of what it is to go from a marine biologist in an undergraduate level all the way through to the ideal permanent position of being a tenured professor of marine biology or associated subject.
1: Exactly. So
0: one of the things that's
1: going to be expected of you as you start moving into postgraduate marine biology are research publications. Now, research publications are basically pieces of research that you've completed and then sent off to an academic journal for publication. And, um, and really, they're the currency in our field. So you're going to be measured against the research publications that you can put out. Publishing academic research is quite a tall order and it means that you're going to be scrutinized on a really high level. So what Amir and I are going to do right now is we're going to, we're going to talk to you about the process of submitting a research article and how to get it published.
0: Yeah, and, and actually I think it's, it's a very good point actually that you've made that you will be scrutinized because the, the higher up you get in the academic world and the more you're kind of revered as a lead researcher... Also, the more of a target you become, at least in my experience and what I've observed, is that, you know, people want to always disprove you. People always, especially, you know, scientists, they love arguing. They love debating stuff. And sometimes it's because they have valid points and, you know, you might be so engulfed in your own research that you don't see a a very obvious thing or something that's maybe subtle, not necessarily obvious. And sometimes it's just because scientists can be dicks and they like to argue and kick up kick up dirt. But the point is is that you will become a target because you are are a public figure, whether you like it or not. But publishing is an entity in itself because the process in which it takes to get through a peer reviewed journal is that you write your paper and then you send it off to your journal. The journal then sends it off to a number of volunteer editors that can actually give good input on what you've done your research on and say whether It's worth publishing if it's worth publishing, but it needs corrections, or if it's not worth publishing and you should never, ever do anything ever again because you suck at life. Maybe not in those words. Although that happens quite a lot. Yeah. So so these scientific
1: volunteers are called peer reviewers, and the reason that they're selected is because they're leaders in the field that you're working in. So what that means is that anything you're trying to get published is going to be scrutinized by the best people working in your field which means nothing's going to get past them. It's their job to scrutinize your work and make sure it's absolutely bulletproof science. So that's something that you've really got to get used to in academia is you can't pull the wool over anyone's eyes. You really have to make sure everything you do is watertight.
0: All right, so you have this process of submitting to a peer-reviewed journal and getting your you know, papers and your research published, and that's great. And as you said, that's the currency. It's, it's publish or perish. That's the very famous kind of saying. Um, but... What does it actually take? And this is something that you would learn through your master's, your PhD, your postdoc, and if you're really, really lucky, your undergraduate as well. But what does it actually take to do the research and to write the paper to get your research published?
1: Yeah. So, um, so this is a really important point, and I think this is what being a marine biologist comes down to, and what your day-to-day life is going to come down to. So. Um, once you've come up with an investigation or an experiment that you want to perform, you're going you're to set that up and you're going to perform it. And depending on what your research is, that could be spending a lot of time in a laboratory, that could be spending a lot of time um, out in the field, perhaps scuba diving, perhaps on ships. Um, there's lots of different avenues that you could end up on. But in reality, what's going to happen is you're going to perform an experiment or do some data collection over a relatively short period of time and then you're going to spend an incredibly long period of time <laughs> um, analyzing that data and writing a paper after that. So what it means is that in reality, as a marine biologist, you spend the vast majority of your time writing on your laptop or, or working in your office and a significantly smaller period of time in a laboratory or out in the field.
0: Uh, I will just say this caveat, sorry to interject, but it, it also depends on what, you know your area of research is, for example, my own master's dissertation was completely statistical and and you know uh, computer based. I was never in the field, which is unfortunate because you know it was all about sharks and and swordfish. Right, actually, I, well, I think that's a really a really valuable anecdote. Actually, is um is
1: you've got a proven track record of shark research, and um and your dissertation project's incredibly interesting and. and and of the highest quality and yet you still at no point during your research went out into the field and worked with sharks for your master's degree and so yeah i mean i mean that i think that kind of like summarizes marine biology in some ways it's like you don't always necessarily get to go kind of spend time with the animals that you're investigating
0: yeah you you might well you might you might but essentially from my own personal view it's like You get into it because you love marine biology, you, you know, for you, you love diving, you love seeing the underwater world, I do too, and a lot of people do, but once you actually get into the science of it, at least in the beginning, you know, you start off at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, you have to work your way up to doing field research, in my experience, obviously, you know, there's tons of programs and, um, you know, internship opportunities where you will do field research, But when you're actually doing your undergraduate dissertation or your master's dissertation, you have to work your way up to proving that you can do field work by proving that you are competent enough to be able to produce lab work and stats work using R and ArcGIS and other statistical programs and other mapping programs. I mean, there's a lot that goes in to getting to the point where you are proficient enough to do field work. So that, that's the end goal, I think, for especially the people that get into marine biology because they love the the animals themselves. But that's just from my own personal experience and my own view. I also will say that, you know, we we have kind of mapped out this very difficult and somewhat challenging pathway to pursuing a career in marine biology. And like we said at the beginning of the podcast, Ro and I don't want to dissuade anybody from choosing marine biology as a, as a career um, because... I have no regrets. I have no regrets. You know, like, we, we both love what we do, and we're still very interested. But that's also because that's what's important when you're pursuing it. You need to love what you do. And that's not just marine biology. That's any job ever, anywhere. You need to love what you do. Sometimes you can't be afforded that opportunity and that privilege to love what you do. You know, that's the goal. But there are benefits to being in the sciences and to being in marine biology. Anecdotally, I'll say I love conferences conferences are, are a great medium that allows scientists from all walks of life it doesn't necessarily mean you have to all be researching the same topic or the same subject but you can all meet up and hear different aspects of one passion that you all care about uh, i don't know if you yeah, have anything to I mean, add about that Bob. Con-
1: conferences are fantastic they're, they're a really good laugh and it It lets you kind of like bang your head together with other researchers um, from different areas. It leads to lots of interdisciplinary collaboration. And also, just because publishing paper takes a long time, going to conferences lets you hear about the most recent research and really keep your finger on the pulse
0: of uh, the scientific community. Yeah, I mean, not only that, but something that was, you know, uh, uh, one of our module leaders, one of our kind of professors at the beginning of our course, she had said this to us and, you know, you kind of take it on the chin. But then when you go to a conference yourself, you experience it firsthand that you you attend these workshops, you attend these talks and lectures. But then everybody goes out for social gatherings as well. You go to a bar, you go to a pub, and you'll be able to talk to them and kind of hammer out ideas that in an informal setting make it appropriate and allow for you to have conversations that you wouldn't necessarily normally have in a very kind of formal and academic setting. So, you know, the point is conferences are awesome. You, you meet a lot of great people and you have a lot of great conversations.
1: One of my favorite things about marine biology is being able to work your own time schedule. So I've spent the last six months on a research project where I knew that in six months time I had to turn in a paper which had all of my data completed in it and was written up and ready for publication. But what i did with my time over that six months was entirely up to me so i had i had no manager following me around telling me what to do and in reality you know um i mean both amir and i did the same thing we both had to work incredibly hard over that six month period so um so we were really working probably more than a 40 hour week but you do it in your own time. So if you want to have a lion one morning, that's fine. If you want to listen to music as you work, that's fine. You can drink as many cups of coffee as you want in a day—probably too many. Um, you know, <laughs> play. You
0: know, take a few ping pong breaks. And yeah, like, oh, and
1: if if you want to do your do your work late in the evening or like work until one or two in the morning, but not get up till ten the following day, that's that's totally fine. And and it just buys you this freedom. Um, which is really liberating, and it's really nice. But you, but you still have to work pretty, pretty
0: bloody hard. Yeah, I mean, definitely agreed. And you know, the higher up you get, the more pressure. As we've stated before, that you know you might have to apply for a grant funding, for example, and that's also another kind of currency. Where the more money you bring into the university, the more money you know you get for your research. The higher the chances are that you'll stay on the faculty. So. Essentially, over the last 40 minutes, Ron and I have hopefully gotten the message across of how to take the path of being a marine biology from high school, or sixth form in A-levels if you're in the UK, all the way up through to a career in post-docing, and if you're really good and persistent and lucky as well, to a full-time tenured position as professor in marine biology in whatever field that's the ideal pathway it's hard it's rough but it's rewarding and if you're really passionate about it you'll get there no no doubt about it you can do it i believe in you yeah that's that's actually such a massive
1: thing it's like if you're diligent and if you care about it enough to work as hard as you possibly can you will make it Yeah. yeah that's 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 the bottom line
0: it's I would say if you were going to measure the chances of breaking into professional sports and breaking into the sciences, I couldn't tell you anything about that ratio. (laughs) (laughs) I literally have no idea what I'm talking about. I, I literally have no idea where I'm going with this. I'm kidding, I do. But the point is, is that once you get to this level of being in the sciences and being in the research field, if you do choose to do that, again, you can do consultancy. If you want to sell your soul, you can work on an oil rig. Whatever you want to do, that's my own personal opinion. Um, You don't have to go into academia. That's just the avenue that Ro and I have chosen thus far. But if you do, one of the main things that have kind of been ingrained into... Our, our learning and the path that we've chosen is being able to communicate the leading research that you do and that, you know, the other colleagues in your field do to the public. And not only conveying that research in a very easily understandable manner, but being scientifically accurate. The term is scientific literacy, so to speak. You know, there's, there's a lot of different figures right now that are great examples of this. There's Sylvia Earle, for example, who's amazing, you know, she, just just the quotes that you have, you know, she has, without blue, there's no green. You know, it's simple, it's to the point, and you can understand it. Without the oceans, there's no terrestrial life. That, that's, that's the message that she gives, but she does it in a way that she can engage the public as well. She does TED Talks, she does other, you know, kind of very public uh, speaking activities and events, and you you get the picture that she's involved in trying to to communicate data into a very easily understandable uh, way that the public can understand. But it's not, you know, just to take it out of context, it's not just marine biology. You have great other scientific figureheads like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who does it for astrophysics, and Bill Nye, who... Kind of does it for physics and a bit of other subjects. Um, but, you know, he's also great because he tries to make it accessible. You know, then if I guess if you're going to be a a UK citizen, there's Brian Cox. Brian Cox, the man himself. The yeah. man himself. True hero. True hero. I like Brian Cox. So, yeah, it's, it's very important. And something that we've been taught is that it's part of the job of a scientist to not just lead... The research in that field but to be able to communicate it accurately and understandably to the public yeah I, I absolutely and i think
1: actually in marine biology at the moment there's um there's a little bit of a vacuum of really great public speakers like there there are some out there but um there's a lot of really fantastic marine biology research coming out and it's perhaps not having the public impact that it should be especially with regards to things like climate change so if you're an aspiring marine biologist, it's, it's really paramount that you make sure you take take a public speaking class, join a debate society and and learn to have a really eloquent public facing persona where you can communicate what you're doing and what relevance what you're doing has to members of the public so that your research can carry some weight and hopefully start to influence policy um, or whatever driver the end goal of the research is uh,
0: pursuing. Yeah, I mean, completely agree. I couldn't agree more. With that scientific literacy, though, and that responsibility that lays on the scientist and the researcher to convey that information accurately, there also is the portrayal of scientists in the media, and as well the relationship between the public and science right now. And I think it's interesting because if you take a look at history, you know, you have this relationship with the sciences that Because religion was such a a heavy hitter, it was such a dominant force in past cultures and civilizations, that if you were a scientist, you were the enemy, you were a heretic, and you would be persecuted. And unless you were a a person of faith, unless you believed and were a God-fearing individual, you couldn't express your scientific ideals and theories without the fear of being persecuted. Now we live in a day and age where, you know, when it comes to scientists that are climatologists or marine biologists that, you know, work on fisheries or global warming and they release their reports and they release their research every year, it's still not necessarily taken seriously because, it, and this is again my opinion, but because it doesn't necessarily directly affect humans, even though it does, but to your everyday perception, every, everybody's perception, and, you know interject and you can disagree um, but it doesn't infiltrate your everyday life necessarily um, yet that people don't take it seriously as much as they should and so now we're at the standstill where you know you have this portrayal of scientists that is just completely inaccurate in, in in the media where it's either oh this kooky scientist says this but also if you watch any TV shows scientists are not portrayed accurately at all a biologist knows everything about physics quantum physics chemistry and biology even though in reality if you go to school for chemistry biology and physics you're going to school for one of those three you're not going to school for all of them
1: yeah and and actually i think um you know i, I agree with what you're saying and i think we we give journalists and the media a really rough time because actually we're forcing them to report on subjects that they don't really know much about. And, um, I mean, I recently had, um, uh, one of my publications spoken about on the radio and, um, and they absolutely butchered it and they, um, and they really, really struggled to to comprehend what the paper was about, even though it's a relatively straightforward paper, just because they have no contextual understanding. So what ended up on the radio was kind of like a few sound bites and quotes from the paper strung together, but they weren't particularly coherent and would have left a listener maybe not quite understanding um, what the message was. And so I think as scientists, we've got to make it our own responsibility to make sure that our science is properly communicated to the public, whether that becomes keeping a blog or writing for magazines like New Scientist or writing newspaper columns, making radio appearances yourself, all all of that kind of stuff, just to make sure what you're trying to to speak about is being conveyed properly.
0: Agreed. That was actually what Roe just said is a much more precise and not convoluted way of saying what I was trying to say. I went on a tangent that didn't really make sense, but I agree with Roe. Also, I want to congratulate Roe for his first publication – Uh, Very exciting. Thank you. Um, But also, you know, agreed. And, and, you know, these mediums and avenues like the TED Talks and the I Fucking Love Science website is great. You know, that's exactly what we need. We need people that can accurately or, you know, 90% of the time accurately depict the sciences and the research that they're studying about or that they're interested in. And relate it in a article or in a journalistic way that accurately presents the science. Um, so that's my soapbox. I'll step down now because I feel like I'm not, I'm not making as much sense as I should be in my head. We've drunk some whiskey. We have drunk some bushmills. <laughs> we have drunk some bushmills. Uh, but I urge everyone to drink Bushmills, unless you're under the age of 18 in the UK or 21 in the States. Anyway, the point is, I don't want to condone underage drinking, so I'll just say, back to the original point of this podcast, being a marine biologist is awesome. It's hard work, it's challenging, and it's a very long road, but it's rewarding, and I have no regrets... I, I think Roe here has no regrets. Roe, do you have any regrets? I have no regrets. i never had less regrets less. ever. You hear that? Less regrets ever. It's, a, it's literally a glowing statement. It could not be further from the truth, though. <laughs> <laughs> I cry myself to sleep every night. <laughs> no, uh, but seriously, folks, we, we do enjoy what we do. And if you have any other questions or queries about what it takes and the path that it is to be a marine biologist shoot us a message, let us know, because we will honestly give you our opinion. We won't sugarcoat it, but, you know, we're, again, we, we enjoy it, so. And remember, <laughs> don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, to be fair, that's a very important lesson. I made that mistake when I was younger did you actually look how I turned out <laughs> <laughs> he's a marine biologist you see that Seinfeld
1: episode where the guy's like yeah. I'm a marine George. biologist <laughs> um, and um fucking when I was travelling um, some like the two Canadians I was with they were like what are you doing and I was like I'm a marine biologist and they were like a marine biologist and I was like what, what are you talking about I had no idea what they were talking did you not about. watch the Seinfeld I've episode? never seen it I've still not seen it but they've described
0: it in great detail to me we need to watch it okay that's good alright if you haven't seen that sign for that episode you failed at life so far so go watch it and then become a marine biologist a marine biologist a marine biologist <laughs> Yeah. Also, you is be... anybody here a marine <laughs>
1: biologist
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway but yeah, yeah love you bye yeah what, what they don't tell you is you get a badge and a gun thanks for tuning in thanks for tuning in indeed ciao for now ciao for now (laughs) alright everybody that is our show for today so thank you very much for listening as always we wouldn't be here without you the lovely audience Um, but if you could do one more thing don't forget to like and share us on Facebook SoundCloud, Twitter subscribe on iTunes tell your friends, tell your family do what you gotta do but know that we love you anyway we'll see you next week everyone toodaloo